0: And I'll be reading the passage for us tonight. Matthew 5, verses 1-2 through 2 and 17-20. through 20. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear... you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven
1: let's pray jesus teach the first verse on this page is uh, you went up on the mountain and you began to teach and we don't need me and we don't need my thoughts We really need you, and we need your thoughts. Your word is a resurrection word. It's resurrection life that comes out of your mouth, and that's what we need. So breathe over us tonight. Teach us tonight. Sort us out, both in our heads and in our hearts, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, right after seminary, one of the first jobs that I had, I was a new campus minister. I moved out to New Mexico right after seminary. And I had a side job those first few years. And my side job was I was a TA, I was, grade, I was a paper grader for my seminary's counseling department. So all of their counseling classes, people from all over the world would take these classes and every couple of weeks, I would just get inundated with all of their assignments. And these would be like 10 page, single space papers. And I had my own life and my own job and then these things would fill up my inbox and I'd have a set number of days to grade these things, comment on them, and return them uh, to the students. And this was my first time being on the, behind the curtains on the other side as one who gives grades, not one submitting and trying to get a certain grade. And so what I learned in this experience is we didn't really have a rubric. And so what I would have to do is kind of read through all the papers and then be like, well, this lady really got it. I mean, she referenced all the things, she got the material, she seemed like she knew what she was talking about. This person didn't know what they were talking about, didn't mention all the stuff that we had studied. And so she gets an A and she gets a D. And then everybody else kind of falls in the middle somewhere, like a lot of Bs, a lot of high Cs. That's called, that's a way, that's a a kind of curving grades. It's, It's not grading students against an objective, absolute standard. It's grading students against other students, right? Now, I love a good curve as much as you do because when I was in grad school here, uh, I, I hate math and I don't do well with math. I, I was in a public finance class and the class average was like a 45, which made me happy because I had like a 35. It was so bad that the dean came and had a meeting with our class without our professor there. And he was like, what's, what's going wrong? Like, is your professor like unable to teach the material? Is there a language barrier? Like, what's going on here? And long story short, he, Made her curve our midterms significantly so my like 35 somehow ended up being like a low 80 and I was like this is amazing like I know this stuff you know though that the problem with curving is that I didn't know that stuff there's a way with curves where you could literally get an A but have failed the test you're not actually ready to move on and build more material on the stuff you've already learned. You don't actually know what you're talking about, but you have a grade that says you've mastered it. This is one of the reasons we love curves, but it's also one of the reasons we're not okay with curves when it comes to real-life stuff and other people. So about a year and a half ago, I had, for the first time in my life, um, surgery up at Athens Regional, and The last thing that I saw before they administered the anesthesia is they rolled me into the operating room and there's a picture. This is the last thing I saw. And I was the dude on the table. That's called a da Vinci robotic, or a da Vinci surgery robot. And there's a surgeon in another room who has these little things on his hands and is like manipulating that to do it. And yes, those are knives and scalpels. And uh, I did my research before the surgeon. You bet your hide, I researched and Googled the heck out of this surgeon. And I'm like, where did he go to school? What certifications does he have? How did he do on that kind of stuff? How much experience with this machine does he have? Can that thing get hacked? All of this stuff. (laughs) Because I'm really like, the question beneath the question was like, well, what if this guy is like top of his class, but his class was terrible? So he's like a 4.0 med student, but only because he got curved up there. The next time you fly, do you want a pilot who actually knows how to fly in all conditions, or a pilot who got curved up to an A because her flight class was a bunch of deadbeats? Do you want your therapist to be a D student who got curved up to an A, or do you want your therapist that you're expecting and needing to untangle your life to actually know what she's talking about? actually know what to do with you. It turns out in real life, when real things are on the line more than arbitrary grades, we're not as okay with curving as we think. We can pull that picture down. Some people are probably getting disturbed. We'll go back to a black screen for your sake. Thanks, Mia. Here's the question that I'm getting at. So when it comes to Jesus and his law and your living, does he grade you on a curve does he assess you like against other UGA students kind of the average college student and he's like well you're kind of a D spiritually but you're a heck of a lot better than the other girls in your house or the other guys on your hall and so you're kind of like you're gonna be okay because I got bigger issues to deal with or does he assess you or grade you against some other standard? Now some of you know, spoiler alert is coming. Um, The spoiler alert is Yes, he grades you against a different objective standard Now hang on to your seats because here's the standard that all human beings are judged against and graded against. You ready? God himself And in a sense, this is much worse than like, you know, you're giving a presentation and the guy in front of you gets up and just dazzles the crowd. Your professor's crying. There's a standing ovation, and you're like, I remembered about this this morning. I don't have a PowerPoint. I'm like, in Crocs, whatever. This is not going to go well. The standard that God's law judges us against, grades us against, is not each other. It's not the average American in 2021. It's him. It's the God of love. And really, the, the law, the commandments, and scripture are really just an itemized definition of what it looks like to love people and to love and prize God. And so the law holds you up to the righteous and pure God of love, the eternal God, and it examines us, and it grades us, and there is no curve, there is no curve. Now, I want you to reflect right now on what, where your mind is and where, where your thoughts are or emotions or whatever and whether you're even engaged or not because your gut reaction to what I just said, I said it in a way to try to trigger you, your gut reaction to what I just said, that's what Jesus really wants to talk with you about right now, tonight. Where do your thoughts go when you hear this? What do you wanna do next? So let me put the question just squarely at us in the room. Um, where does your mind go and what do you do next when you hear who you'll be judged against or who we are judged against? So here's some options. Does your, did your summit kind of sink in doom? You're like picking it up off the floor, the bottom dropped out, you're like, oh no. Has your mind already, uh, you, feel, you actually feel fine because your mind is kind of insulated, it's already bringing forth the litany of the ways you're like God, that you're okay, the things that you do, the reasons you're fine? Are you begging God for a curve? I imagine there's a handful of folks, uh, of us in the room, they're thinking, see, this is, this is why I hate Christianity. This is why I shouldn't have come tonight. I knew this was going to happen. These guilt bombs, the fear-mongering, this is what I hate. Um, perhaps some of us are thinking, well, it's a good thing that I don't have to worry about this, these kind of passages because I'm a Christian and Jesus is gracious and the law doesn't apply to me anymore. I don't live by the law. God's forgiven me. It's not that relevant to me anymore. Now, if there's been any glimmer of any of that stuff in your head or in your heart, um, those are all different variations of what Jesus is talking about in this passage of abolishing the law. They're all different variations. And if, if you're like, well, 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 then, ooh, like I'm relieved because I wasn't thinking of those things. You probably were, you just might not feel it. Jesus expects that you were because he, he says, he starts in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, he's talking to his disciples for all intents and purposes, we could say he's talking to Christians. He's talking to his people, his followers, Um, and he's saying to them, I I guess my question is, why would he put it that way? Why would he say, hey, guys, don't y'all be thinking that I came to abolish the law unless we were already thinking that he came to abolish the law. Do away with it. Oh, that's not for Christians. Or we might be people, he's assuming, I think, who find ways to abolish the law ourselves. And pay attention to this too before we get into this, like look at how Jesus is really pulling out all the stops. Look at how he talks to us and his people. He says, don't you be thinking I came to abolish the law? Because I haven't. He says, I haven't come to abolish anything. Truly I tell you, which is him grabbing us by the shoulders and saying, listen to me, pay attention. Truly I tell you, the world will disappear before a single dot over an eye will disappear in my law. It's not going anywhere. And then he warns us by saying, whoever relaxes or sets aside even the most insignificant of these commands and laws will be called least in my kingdom. And then he says, unless your righteousness, and he's talking about real righteousness, it surpasses that of the clergy, of the, of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so suffice it to say, Jesus is saying, this is important. So pay attention. Now if we're going to pay attention, we need to kind of define what does, it, what, what, what does it mean that he's talking about abolishing the law. Well, abolishing the law is perhaps doing anything to shirk responsibility to love like, live like, or be like the God who made you. It's doing anything, passively or actively, purposefully or unwittingly, to shirk your responsibility as a human being to love like, live like, and be like the God who made you for himself. That's what abolishing the law, perhaps, how we could define it. Now, you might be thinking, I mean, the law of God really just shows us how to love other people and how to love him. It shows us the character of God. It shows us the heart of God. It shows us the purity of God. So you're thinking like, well, who would want to do away with that? That's good stuff. He's loving. He's gracious. He's patient. He's kind. He's holy. Who would want to abolish that? Well, we're opposed to God's law, and this is an uncomfortable conversation at some level, or at least intriguing to you, because the law exposes that we do not, in fact, look like, love like, or live like the God who made us for himself, right? I'll show you an example in just a minute, but at at a minimum, it, it shows us, it exposes that we do not, in fact, love like or live like him. Now, and this is why we get uncomfortable and resentful and maybe cynical about this kind of stuff. There's an old Russian proverb that says, it's not the mirror's fault that you're ugly, Doesn't that sound like a Russian proverb? You're like, man, that's dour, like a slap across the face. Well, it is. And it's a little bit funny, but it's true, because mirrors just kind of dispassionately show you what they see. And mirrors force you to deal with what you really look like. And the law of God is that thing in this world that forces you to deal with you that makes you look at you and what you're really like more on your insides than just the outsides and that's why a lot of us run from his law or christians who've grown up in the church will ignore his law we just you go back through your mind you're like you know in the past year have i ever thought about obeying or trying to understand what god is actually asking of me and we're like, I'm coming up with nothing, like snake eyes there. I, I never think about it. Perhaps the reason we ignore it is it deeply unsettles us, and it shows us who, what's really going on. And here's an example, I mean, because I, I get, I, I got to push a little bit harder in this particular place, because some of us might be thinking, yeah, I'm just not tracking with this because I feel fine. Like, I go to church, I go to RUF, I love this stuff, I love God. Here's what God said. Here's, what, here's how God describes worship. Here's how his law takes a little word like, have no other gods before me, or love me with all your mind, your strength, your soul. Here's how God defines that in the law, Isaiah 58. He says, is this not the worship that I choose? Think about how different this can be from just kind of church going. Is this not the worship that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free? and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own neighbor? See how different uh, what we see and what the law sees is? Like we see attendance record. Did I go? Did I not go? Did I sleep in? Did I wake up and go? I woke up and went. Awesome. God is saying, no, 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 worship. Worship is all of life overflow of your heart, because it's delighted in me, and your heart is more and more becoming like my heart. That's just an example of what I'm saying the law exposes in us of how it shows us, and Jesus says, do not think that I've come to do away with this stuff, to abolish it. And these are the things that he shows us are really going on in that. So look, most of us can feel kind of icky about this kind of stuff, and you're like, Second point, Ben, come on, keep moving, you're going to make it, get through this stuff, and we want to get distracted, we don't like to think about these things, and we get busy trying to abolish the law, and ways that that happens, one of which is just misunderstanding, and this is kind of just like a way that we're, there's some ignorance about it, we misunderstand it, and maybe some of his disciples in this moment, uh, in this Mountain that he was teaching thought, well, the law is Old Testament. That's the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is gracious. This is the New Testament. This stuff doesn't apply to me. Jesus came to lower the bar so I could hop over it. Maybe we think like that. His commandments, I'm not opposed to them. They're a good idea, but I don't need to follow them because that's legalism. But Jesus says to his disciples, to his people, Jesus in the New Testament says to his people, If you relax one of these, you're called least in my kingdom. If you teach other people to be like, oh, don't worry about that. You're least in my kingdom. And he says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the clergy, you'll never enter the kingdom. So at least we can notice it's it's apparently not true that Jesus came to throw out the law and say, well, that was the way God dealt with people in the old times. But he's just a lot nicer now. And the way that he deals with us now is this other way. If that's you, by the way, if, 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 if you feel like, okay, that's me, keep listening, because Jesus is going to come back to you and, and address you in a really hopeful way. But others of us um, might try to abolish the law by meeting the standard, by lowering the standard or curving, like we talked about earlier. And that's what the clergy of his day was doing. That's what the pastors, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, that's what they were experts at, effortlessly did this stuff. And the way that they did it, the way that they relaxed or set aside commandments was by narrowing them and externalizing them. Making the law just about outward behavior, like if I literally haven't stopped a beating heart of another human being, I'm innocent of murder. And you heard last week from Morgan what what the law really means when it says thou shalt not murder. And they narrowed it too. And this is like where we get into kind of lawyerly semantic games about like what actually is sex like I mean we we did this stuff but we didn't do that thing and I'm not picking on any of y'all I mean we're, we're having an adult conversation with each other but I'm trying to help you see what this sounds like in our heads that's of the same DNA of abolishing the law of saying well let's narrow this down so much that pretty much nobody's getting hit by this thing and I'm safe over here or I'm safe over there But again Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's showing us that the law is not just a camera that's looking at your outsides, it's an x-ray that's looking at your insides. You could x-ray re- me right now and see a whole ton of things that you can't see if you took a picture of me. Maybe there's broken bones, maybe there's a tumor, maybe I've got pneumonia, all things you can't see just by looking at me. But the law of God, Jesus's law exposes the double life or the hypocrisy or the places where there's just a disparity between outside public me and inside private me. Look, this is heavy stuff, so let's take a break. Let's tell a story. Um, this is a true story. A friend of mine, right after we graduated UGA, moved to another town and worked for a church. It was a ministry job. He was working for like a youth pastor. About a year after he left and I didn't see him, we ran into each other at another friend's wedding. We were doing the catch-up. Hey, what are you up to? And I was like, how's the job? And he goes, well, I left a couple of months ago. And I'm doing the easy math. And I'm like, wait, like, you were really excited about this. I saw you a year ago when you started this job, and it's you said a few months ago I left it. And so I'm like, what happened? And he started to tell me all these stories, um, some of the highlights of which were this. He said, basically, I, I realized that the pastor that I worked for was a whole different person when he was in front of people and when he wasn't from in front of people. So he said, I was never at his house where I didn't see him with a scotch in his hand. And he was always kind of tipsy in those moments. And he said, the way that he talked about the students was like really harsh and dismissive. He said his wife would invite some of us on staff over for dinner, and the way that he looked when he was around her is just like bare tolerance. Like really short with her all the time. Said I worked there almost a year and he never once initiated relationship with me or invited me over. And he said, it took me a while to figure out what was going on because this guy never technically crossed any big red lines. Like, he wasn't technically an alcoholic. He never technically abused his wife. He never technically mismanaged funds at the church or, like, lost his temper at an employee and got fired. Like, he never technically colored outside those lines. But he said, I was so turned off to see that what was inside of him was so different than what was outside of him that I just had such a bad taste in my mouth that I had to quit and I had to get out of there. My buddy's story raises the question for us tonight. Are you okay? Are you content with mere external obedience? Mere coloring in the lines and not crossing the big red lines? Or do you, and I'm talking about you, do do you desire integrity in the inner parts? Do you desire to get to know a person better and better? And what you learn of them more and more and more is that there's goodness there. That they're good people. Um, Would any of you want to work for that guy? Or perhaps would you want to work for a guy or a girl who the more you work for them, the more they invite you over and kind of let you into their family. And the way that you see her with her husband or him with his wife is just like, it makes you want to get married. You're like, man, he really enjoys her. And they blow up at their kids sometimes, but you've overheard them asking their kids forgiveness one time. And they make mistakes as your, lead, your boss or your manager, but they also are open to your feedback. Who do you want to work for? That's what some of these questions are getting at. You, like the God who made you like him, desires integrity and righteousness in the inner parts, right? I know who you want to work for. I know what kind of person you want to be, what kind of boss you want to be. Nobody on this campus is content with mere technical rule-keeping that hides inner corruption. And neither does God. He desires congruency, alignment between who we are that other people know and who we are inside. Sinclair Ferguson Old Scottish pastor that I quote a lot, he says, Jesus didn't weaken the law. On the contrary, he let it out of the cage that the Pharisees had imprisoned it in. And he allowed it to pounce on our secret thoughts and our motives to tear to pieces our bland assumption that we are able to keep his law in our own strength. I've spent 25 minutes pushing at this one little point because we have mustered great defenses against the very thing we're talking about. Jesus is extra hard and a little bit sharp-edged here to get past all the insulation, all the defenses, so that we would listen to how he fulfills the law. His sentence isn't just, gosh, this would be terrible if he just said, I have not come to abolish the law. And you're like, okay, like what do I do with that? thank God he doesn't stop there. He says, I've come to fulfill the law and I've come to accomplish the law. And he said, none of the law will pass away until I have come to accomplish every little dot and every little line of it. And this is where the good news becomes, comes in to invade all the bad news and the hard news and the sobering news of what we've talked about. But what does it mean what does Jesus mean when he says he's come to fulfill the law? We know he's not abolishing it. We know you should not try to abolish it. We know you don't want to live in a world where God says to lawbreakers and people who've broken the law against you, people who victimized you, people who've abused you, oh, don't worry about it. You'll, we'll let you slide in because I'm nice. You don't want to live in that world. But what does it mean that Jesus has come to fulfill that very lo- his very law, that he will not abolish but f- fulfill it? It means this. We'll, we'll do a little theology and I'll tell you some stories. It means that he fulfills the law in his 33 years of living in your shoes except for righteously. Of going through every human experience that you have encountered up to this point in your life and the next 13 years <laughs> and beyond, right? It's not like, you know, you haven't experienced most things by that age. It means that Jesus has lived through every experience you have, except he lived, lived through it well. He lived through it with faith. He lived through it righteously. On the outside and in the inside, it means that there was integrity. The more people got to know him, the more they were persuaded, this guy's legit. This guy's unbelievable. It means that he went through suffering, he went through persecution, he went through social isolation, and he went through multiple times of being the victim of crimes with no justice. He lived through political oppression. He was in relationship with thousands and thousands of difficult, hard to love, messy, broken, awful people. But he did it well. He grew up in a small house with tons of little siblings. He grew up without a dad because his dad died at a young age. He grew up poor. He grew up under the thumb of the Romans. And he did it all beautifully he grew up with a singular target on his chest and on his back not just by other people but by the devil himself tempting him at every turn to take the easy ray to take the shortcut to not have life so hard on himself but to take it easy on himself but he never did it and he fulfilled the law by keeping it and by loving God with a passion that we have never seen before and never seen after You could x-ray Jesus's heart at any moment of his life and all you would find is more goodness and more love and more purity and more righteousness there's never a skeleton in the man's closet Scott Sauls is a pastor that um, I listen to every now and then and he said this uh, in a blog he put out this week he said it's not lost on me that in the middle of such a jaded and cynical age there's such a deep and broad hunger For things like mr rogers and ted lasso Uh, and he said people are so hungry for there to be a person who is genuinely and legitimately good whose insides and outsides match up whose private out of view life and public life match up and so a couple of years ago like right before the pandemic um, a beautiful day in the neighborhood came out with tom hanks and people flocked to see it and were bawling their way through the movie. It was the story of Mr. Rogers, kind of a behind the scenes, a journalist at a magazine as a true story had been assigned to do kind of an expose on Mr. Rogers. Um, and, and to publish it, his wife told him, Roy, don't ruin Mr. Rogers for me. Because she knew what happens in exposés. You're gonna go dig up the bones, you're gonna bring out the baggage, you're gonna say, well actually, you know, his wife divorced him and said he was a terrible man. Or she, she said, don't ruin Mr. Rogers for me. I need him to be good. So the rest of the movie shows basically this journalist's on and off interactions with Mr. Rogers, the interviews, the time that they spent together. And he's skeptical at first because he thinks it's all just an act. It's when the cameras are rolling. But he finds out that this man, whose name was Fred, Ro- like that was his actual name, right? Um, that this man was exactly who he was on TV for the kids off screen. He really had laid down his life in a career to help broken people and to care for kids and to help them trust. And it changed him, changes this journalist. And it's a way different genre, way different storyline, but it's the same thing with Ted Lasso. It's like it's, it's the feel good show that actually draws you in because this coach is the same on the field, in the locker room, at a bar by himself. He's not kind of whitewashed, this non-textured character. He says hard things. He does hard things. He has courage, but he's the same person. And we want that. We want to believe that that's real. And you know and I know that these men are distant, just the faintest glimmers ever of what Jesus Christ is really like. The more you get to know him, the more time you spend with him, the more drawn in you are, the, more, the less skeptical you are, the more persuaded you are that could it be that there is one who obeys the law like this? When you think of obeying the law, don't think Taliban, rigid religious thinker. Think Ted Lasso, think Mr. Rogers, life-giving presence. Everybody wants to be around him because the law is love. Jesus fulfilled the law through his life, and he fulfilled the law through his death. We're almost done, but I want, you to, I want to ask for your attention for just a few more minutes because this is where it gets very relevant to you. Jesus doesn't just fulfill the law through the life that he lived and offers to share with you, offers to share the grade with you, offers to share the consequences and the results with you. But he also says he fulfills the law and accomplishes the law through his death On the cross it is on the cross as he bears the just penalty that the law demanded of lawbreakers that he also fulfills the law for people like us scripture says cursed in the sense of cursed by god is every man who's hanged on a tree crucifixion was a very particular kind of death that signaled and symbolized to the world this person Is damned by God, forsaken and abandoned and alienated and out of luck. And he, the innocent law keeper, the one who's fulfilled the law and accomplished the law, is bearing the curse and the penalty of the law. Now this is where some modern people might say, but why does it have to be this way? Why can't God just say, don't worry about it, I'm announcing clemency for everybody. Why does he have to put Jesus through all this stuff? Why all this blood? Why all this suffering? Jesus had to die on the cross for the sins of people like us because God is just. And God is the justifier of the unjust. God must lawfully make innocent the unlawful. It's gotta be done in a legal, lawful, just way. Here's why not. Have you ever been snuck into a show or a concert, or a party, or like, I don't know, hopefully someone didn't sneak you into like a classified area or something, but have you ever been somewhere you know you shouldn't have been, and it's because somebody snuck you in, like the fake ID? I know you can't enjoy yourself in that environment, because what are you worried about? Somebody's gonna notice I don't belong. They're gonna say, hey, let me see your ID that's a fake, get out of here, or I'm calling the police. Somebody says, let me see your credential. Are you supposed to be here? And you can't even enjoy it because you're worried you're going to get found out. You don't want to live in a world where you think God just says, hey guys, don't worry about it. Let's just all be nice and love each other now. Again, do you want God to say that about your abuser? The one who victimized or molested you when you were a little kid? Don't worry about it. Just forget about it. We're going to move on. No, you don't want to live in that world. God is just and the justifier of the unjust. Somebody has to pay. Jesus dying on the cross is God saying to each of us, your sins do matter. I can't overlook it. I can't move on. You can't move on. We must deal with this. You must give an account. This will not slide by. This will not slip through the cracks this is not okay. You have done great damage. Justice must be rendered. Jesus dying on the cross for sins that were not his, but were yours, is God looking into the eye of every little thing, dead in the eye, and condemning it, and sentencing it, and punishing it. What's what's the difference? You no longer, if you're in Jesus, and you've looked to him for refuge, and you said, I can't fulfill the law. You've got to fulfill it for me. I have no hope. I know what the law demands. It's not just don't go out and kill somebody. It's, it's my thoughts. It's my desires. It's my avoiding that girl I don't want to talk to. And you say, Jesus, you have to do it. He does it in such a just and legal and good and safe way that you get to enjoy yourself and the world To come you get to enjoy yourself now because it's like god's not looking for me anymore it's like the bouncer's not after me to say hey wait a second you don't really belong you just snuck by and you're always wondering left does god really care is it going to matter again it's so much more secure than if jesus sneaks you into the kingdom by saying hey don't worry about it let's forget about that past jesus worries about your past and he paid for it. And you are absolutely innocent, absolutely forgiven. You have absolutely fulfilled the law of God in the eyes of God, and are absolutely free now to the next several weeks as we look at what it looks like to follow this law that you've been freed from, and now free to follow without a gun aimed at your head. Friends, if you know jesus run to him all the faster because of how he's fulfilled the law for you and listen to him if you don't know jesus what are you doing trying to fulfill this on your own do you not see what's required of you and do you not see that god stepped up to do what was required of you and to share the results with you come to him by faith even tonight and look to him let's pray jesus we pray that you would move by your spirit and draw us to yourself You do not grade on a curve, and we're thankful for that. You demand righteousness, and that's exactly what you give away freely. Earned not by effort and not by merit, but given freely by grace and received through faith. We pray this in your name.